morning, church. Well, it's been a it's been an interesting week. Everyone in this room currently has had conversations with Jeff or Doug or myself or several of us. And this morning as I, or even this week as I have prepared to preach this text, I would be lying to you if over the past several weeks I said that I have been solely focused and ready to worship on Sunday mornings. That my mind has been distracted, that I have allowed Satan to take a foothold in my spirit. And I'd also be lying if I said that that hasn't impacted me over the last two weeks. And given that we have all now had conversations in this room, I'm not dumb to the fact that we are now all probably having the same questions that I have had for the last two weeks and that Jeff has had for the last two weeks and that Doug has had. All that to be said, this morning as we gathered, as I walked in here and interacted with you all again after the conversations that have been had, it was a reminder of what we're here for. And so this morning, it's easier said than done, and I mean this in no way as some type of spiritual guilt trip, and I'm speaking it to myself, that our focus this morning is on the risen Christ. Our focus this morning is on our Lord and Savior, who in our passage this morning is going to rebuke leaders for their deception. And so this morning, as I say it to you, I say it to me, our gathering this morning is in obedience to the commands of our Lord and Savior. And so here we are, singing together, reading the word together, praying together, fellowshipping together, hearing the word. So, as we take a 90 degree turn away from that and towards our text this morning, I want to begin before I read this text, before I pray, with a little thought experiment. I want you to, in your minds, consider a group of people. This group of people is united by a faith. They're united by a belief. They are staunch and strong in their stances and in their views. They don't waver in what they think. They don't waver in what they believe. They have no doubts in their minds. They are conservative. They are anchored to their position. Consider those qualities. Consider those aspects. What comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? Who comes to your mind? And yet, those people are wrong. Those people are deceived. Those people are facing condemnation for their deception. They're facing condemnation for their errors. 
our text this morning, John chapter 5, 39 to 47. I'm going to pick up where Jeff finished. Says this. Remember, this comes at the end of Jesus' monologue with Pharisees, with this Jewish religious leadership. He just went through the conversation about the witnesses. And here's how he concludes this, this statement. He says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The conclusion of Jesus' teaching in John 5 with the Pharisees, with these religious leaders. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for this gospel of John these scriptures that you have given that, that reveal who you are, that point us to you, for without them we have no hope. Without the special revelation of your text, of your word, Lord, we have nothing. And in your grace and mercy you have given us these scriptures. So Lord, this morning may you illuminate them to our hearts. May you speak to our hearts and grow us and shape us and conform us to the image of Christ through your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So I asked you to consider those, those people this morning. I asked you to think and imagine who those people might be as we walked into this text. In the 1930s in Jamaica, a religious movement began called Rast Rastafari, the Rastafarians. In high school, I was a big Bob Marley fan. Loved Bob Marley. I still do. But if you don't know, Bob Marley was one of the biggest evangelists for the Rastafari movement as he was converted in the 60s to this, this movement. Started in the 30s. Where does the name Rastafari come from? It is the name taken for the person whom they believe to be the incarnate second coming of Jesus Christ. The Ethiopian emperor. The emperor of Ethiopia, his name was Tafari Makonin. Ras is, in, is a royal title, right? Like in, in Lord of the Rings, the royal kings and queens of Numenor have the title Tar. In, in Ethiopia, the royal emperor had the title Ras. So the people of this movement took this name Ras Tafari, Combine the two together, his title and his name, to make the name of their 
religious belief, Rastafari. When he became emperor in the 30s, his royal name was given was Haile Selassie I. Or if you listen to Bob Marley's songs, Haile Selassie I is how he says it and they say it. But as I've, ever, as I've already given away, these people came out of a Protestant church in Jamaica and they believed that Haile Selassie, Rastafari, was the returned, reincarnate, or incarnate Jesus Christ. His title as emperor, not just his royal name that was given, but his title was this. By the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, his imperial majesty, Haile Selassie I, king of kings, lord of lords, elect of God. That was his title as emperor. And so in this spiritual deception that these Protestant believers went under, took this as a sign from the scriptures that Haile Selassie is the returned, incarnate, second coming of Jesus Christ. And it reached a point in which Haile Selassie went to Jamaica. He visited in the 70s. And it was a scene he couldn't even get off the airplane because of the number of people who were there to worship and to see Haile Selassie come in the flesh. They took all sorts of scriptural references and used them to support their Rastafarian beliefs. Babylon, Zion, you listen to Bob Marley music, Babylon and Zion are regular themes as they are themes throughout the scriptures. However, Babylon was everything outside of Africa. Zion is Africa. Ethiopia to be specific. They knew scripture. They came out of a Protestant church. They knew the Bible. And yet, though with that knowledge, they were deceived to the point in which a man becomes, in their minds, the incarnate second coming of Jesus Christ. And in many ways, that's exactly what we have happening at the end of John, or the end of John 5. This deception from religiously staunch, conservative people. And yet they face condemnation. The context of our passage this morning, as we have walked through it over the last several weeks, Jesus heals the lame man at the pool. Remember, Bethesda, he heals him. He picks up his mat, and the religious leaders, these people whom Jesus talks to throughout this, convert, or throughout this passage, says to the man, why have you picked your mat up? You've broken the Sabbath. Remember, he was healed. He couldn't move. He was stuck on a yoga mat. And now he's standing, and he picks his mat up, and that is the condemnation he faces. They want to know who it was who did this. And they begin to seek for Jesus. 
Because Jesus is now the one to blame. He is the one who healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus goes on throughout this passage to give a little Christology lesson to the religious leaders and their fervent supporters. Right? We find out and he tells us that he, Jesus, is here to do the Father's will. That he is the one who receives honor from the Father. That he is the one who gives eternal life. That he is the one who executes justice. That he is the one who raises the dead. Then he concludes with the passage Jeff preached last week of the witnesses who bear testimony to who he is. These four people tell you that I am who I am. John the Baptist. Jesus himself. God the Father. Moses, the scriptures. To use somewhat synonymous language there. And as Jeff said last week, we have a courtroom scenario being put up for us. However, as Jesus finishes this statement, as he gets to this passage, it's not Jesus that is the one on trial. It's not Jesus who is the guilty party. It is the staunch religious conservatives that are the Jewish authorities who have been so deceived to miss the testimony of those four very important people. So he turns the tables. They, to use language in the text that we will see, they are the accused. And there is one who stands to accuse them. They are the accused. So as we dive into this text this morning, our first point is this. Without the Spirit of God, you and I live in a state of spiritual deception. You can't help yourself. Without the work of God in our hearts and minds, illuminating them both to receive the revelation that the scriptures reveal, we are deceived. Now that deception may look like the form of Haley Selassie worship. That deception might look like Allah and Muhammad. That deception might look like the denial of Jesus as Lord and Savior and still a hope waiting for the Messiah. That deception might look like your money in your pockets. That deception might look like the fact that you think you can control your circumstances better than God can. These deceptions take on many forms and many facets that I fear are unique to each of us individually. But apart from the work of Christ, apart from the Spirit doing a mighty work, we are all under a state of spiritual deception. Here is what he says to these leaders, to these Jewish authorities. You search the scriptures... Because you think that in them, you have eternal life. It's a good thing. None of us would stand here and say, reading your Bible is bad. None of us would say that. And yet here's Jesus saying, you are so deceived that you are not just reading the scriptures, you are masters of scripture. You know the Jewish law backwards and forwards. You teach it daily. 
You condemn others for failing to follow it. And yet, you have no idea. That's the state that these men, that these religious leaders, these Jewish Pharisees reside or, or find themselves in. Remember, they know their stuff. They can argue with the best of them. They can debate with the greatest. In fact, they stand here and debate with God the Son throughout the entirety of his ministry. That's how much they think they know that they are willing to debate God the Son routinely. In some ways, it's like the religious mafia, right? They give their teaching. You are expected to listen to them. They will give you your religious info that you need. And if you don't obey them, you will receive their condemnation. That's who these men were. That's who these men were. The religious masters of the day. And yet they are still so deceived. Recall back when I taught on John 3. Nicodemus. What does Isaiah receive from the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6? Go tell them what? Go tell them that they will not see. Go tell them they are going to be blind and deaf. Go tell that to the Jews. Is that because God is a big meanie and he doesn't want to take responsibility for what he has done so he says that and condemns them? No, it is because God leaves them in the state that they want to be in. Remember the cycle that Israel goes through throughout their history starting in the very beginning in the desert. God has left them in the state that they want to be. They are continuously in the state of sin, and so they have been left. And so Isaiah, go tell them they will not see. Isaiah, go tell them they will not hear. These are the men that Isaiah is specifically talking about. These religious leaders and the rest of Israel who refuse to see the hope of the Messiah. Even in John 12, right? I read this, I know, when we did that chapter. John 12, he says this. When Jesus, uh, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, what did Isaiah say? He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. This is in the gospel that we're preaching on. This is John quoting Isaiah. The passages of the Old Testament, we'll get here in a minute, but the passages of the Old Testament have clear applications and implications for what we see in the New Testament. Jesus is using those scriptures of old to reveal and open them up and show that he is the one. 
Moses. Moses. We'll get there in a moment. But there's hope still. There's hope still. But the reality is, in our state of spiritual deception, as they were, so too are we. Right? We can stand here and we can critique the Pharisees and we can be like Mark Driscoll and just destroy the Pharisees in every single sermon we give. But the reality is, as Adam's sin, so have we. As the Pharisees' sin, so have we. Adam's sin is the tie that binds us all together. I saw something yesterday, I believe it was from William Perkins on Instagram, as a little quote, said something like, we really, uh, this is a paraphrase because I don't remember it exactly. But we have really not grasped the truth until we see that we are the ones who have crucified Jesus. Who are the ones who crucified Jesus? The Pharisees, their kangaroo court. But the reality is, we don't understand that if we don't see ourselves as the ones who've crucified Jesus. Adam's sin is the tie that binds. We are not so dissimilar from Adam. We are not so dissimilar from Israel and their constant cycle of sin. We are not so dissimilar from the Pharisees who were willing to stand and debate the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate. Who are willing to murder God incarnate. This original sin, right? Genesis 3. The noetic effects of sin that has just permeated everything. There is nothing in creation that has not been touched by sin. Including us. Adam's sin. Corruption of all things. But knowing us, let us not forget that we still are personally responsible. Yes, we inherited Adam's sin. Yes, we have original sin that we are responsible for. But that still does not mean you are not guilty of your own every waking moment of sin that you have. Psalm 51.5, right? What does that tell us from David? That he was brought forth in iniquity and sin. Did his mother conceive him? That does not mean his mother was the sinner in how he was conceived. David was a sinner from the very moment that he was born. And that corruption is same with us. That we also bear blame that we also to take William Perkins words have crucified Christ so what's the result of this deception that we face and it is this we have the constant need to find God we might not phrase it that way the atheist out on the road might not phrase it that way. The Christian who is living a life of dark sin might not phrase it that way. The, the, the agnostic might not phrase it that way. 
But that's the reality of what we are all are trying to do in our state of spiritual deception. We are trying to establish for ourselves a God to help us and meet our needs. We are all trying to find a God who meets the needs we think we have. The scriptures, they bear witness about me and yet you refuse to come that you may have life. We search and we search and we search and we search and we scratch the itch of fulfillment. We scratch the itch of desire. We scratch the itch of that God-shaped hole in your life. It's like poison ivy that you've refused to get treated and it just itches and itches and itches. And so you scratch and you scratch and you scratch. And it's never, ever resolved. Imagine that if you've had poison ivy. Imagine it never resolves itself. And you itch and you itch and you itch. And like the Pharisees, maybe even you dive headfirst into the Bible and say to yourself, surely me reading the Bible will give me salvation. Or maybe me going to Bible Sunday school will give me salvation. Or maybe me going to Sunday morning church will give me salvation. Or maybe me attending seminary and becoming a pastor will give me salvation. Maybe that will save me. You do the good works. You follow the rules. You strain and you strive and you itch and you itch and you itch because you just can't fill the missing piece. Over the last several weekends or weeks, we've been watching a show called Shetland. It's a British crime mystery show it takes place in Scotland on the island of Shetland and in one of the recent series episodes there's this storyline in which there are these three men on the island of Shetland who are very important one is a doctor the head of a hospital one is a philanthropist and the other um, oh was a lawyer for the underserved they have given their lives to these tasks healing the sick, serving the underserved, giving money and assistance to those who need it. They have poured themselves out. But 20 years prior, they were at a party. One of them brought illicit drugs to the party. A woman took them, died. They buried her and covered it up. 20 years prior. And they've spent their entire lives, their entire adult lives, striving to make up for the sin and the crime they committed. And when the, the officer, the detective, goes through this, every single, well, the one of them was killed because he wanted to come out, so they killed him. But as they come forward, as, as Jimmy Perez, the detective, tries to go and speak and arrest them they all say we've given ourselves up for this island we have done everything we have can, can do for this island you can't hold us 
accountable as guilty for this one thing. What a picture. We've all killed Jesus Christ. And we are all guilty, no matter how much good you think you've done. William Grimshaw of Hayworth used to, as a pastor, keep a little checklist of good deeds and bad deeds to make sure his good deeds outweighed his bad deeds. That was his hope. He was a pastor until he was truly regenerated. But that's our condition. That's our condition under this state of spiritual deception. And just like these three men were all guilty and went to prison, or one was killed, the other two went to prison, so it is with us. We will all be killed, to put it bluntly. We will all be executed for the crime that we've committed. Quickly on John 41 here, this, or John 5, 41. This is going to connect with verses that we are going to talk about later, but it's kind of plopped right here in the middle of this monologue. I do not receive glory from people. It's kind of plopped in there. We're going to talk about glory here in a few minutes in this later passage. But here's what we need to consider. Two things. One, Jesus' glory is not determined by you and me. His glory does not come from us. His glory does not come from how many people follow him. How many people follow you on Instagram? A uh, hundred. How many people follow you on Instagram? 26,000. How many people follow Cristiano Ronaldo, soccer player on Instagram? Probably like 10 million. We receive glory from that. We receive glory from the number of followers that we have inherited and taken upon ourselves. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in a few minutes. But Jesus' glory to start here is not determined by us. He would be glorified apart from his creation ever existing. He would be in full, complete, total glory as God the Son if none of us ever existed. His glory is his regardless. His glory is his regardless. I love what Luke 19 tells us. As Jesus is preparing to go to his death, here's what Jesus, here's what it says in Luke 19. I love this. As he was drawing near, right, he's on the, he's on the back of the donkey, the triumphal entry. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise. Right? We picture this. They're praising God. They're, they're fanning their little palms as he walks by on the donkey. And with a loud voice, they're, 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 they're proclaiming all the mighty works that they had seen. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Ah, but our friends and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher... Rebuke your disciples. How dare they? And here's what Jesus says. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the people, the very stones would cry out. Jesus' glory doesn't come from us. Even if we were not worshiping, he would receive his glory regardless. 
he would receive his glory regardless. We think of Isaiah and the suffering servant passage, Isaiah 53, right? How does it conclude? With Jesus' glory. Jesus' glory. If you want some supplemental reading at some point, you can go ahead and pick up your copy of the second London Confession. Go to chapter 2 and read paragraph 2 and you can look into the glory of the triune God. I don't have time to read it, but you should do it. Number two, point number two. There are consequences and effects that happen as a result of our spiritual idolatry. There are consequences and effects because of our spiritual deception. Namely, idolatry and self-worship. Here's what the passage tells us, 42 to 44. Jesus continues, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. He knows this. They have displayed this. How? I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. What a phrase. The Son of God has come. John the Baptist has said so. God the Father has said so. Jesus himself has said so. Moses has said so. And yet you have not received me. But Haley Selassie comes and he's the one I receive. He's the one. Some guy comes in his own name and he's the one. What a statement. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? The Pharisees, their followers, their religious authorities of the time, their sole focus in life, their sole job is to do what? Have a proper understanding of God. That is, their, that is all they need to do. And they are the centerpiece of the community. That's all they're supposed to do. And Jesus is here basically saying, you know nothing of God. You know nothing of him. The four witnesses. John has said it. The Father has said it. Jesus, I have said it. Scripture says it. But there's the kicker. How can you believe? When you want glory, when you want glory, think of Matthew 6. The Pharisee who stands on the corner and beats his chest in public, praying so all might see him. What does Jesus say? He will receive his glory. He has received his glory and he will receive his condemnation. Luke 18. The Pharisee who stands up in the temple and prays while the sinner, the tax collector, is bowing down, crying, unable to look up to heaven. Jesus said, they've received their glory. They've received their glory. They've crafted their own God. Right? What does our, our, our godless philosopher Nietzsche say? 
God is dead and we have killed him. That's what the Pharisees have done. They have no need for God. They've created their own gods. That's them. But, the same is true of us. We have created our own God. So we have no need for the one true and living God. The tie that binds. The tie that binds. Their sin is our sin too, right? The John Jacob Jingleheimer Smith song, his name is my name too. Their sin is our sin too. The poison ivy. We itch and we itch and we itch and we don't apply the ointment that is given to us. The skin has now been ripped open. We are bleeding. Scars are going to remain. Big scars are going to remain. And Jesus is here. Jesus is offering the ointment to these people. He is offering the ointment, the remedy, the balm. And yet, it's rejected. Surely, no healing, no doctor is going to come out of Bethlehem. Surely, that's not it. Surely, he's not it. But yet, in comes the hero of the age. In comes the hero of the age. And that, that is the Savior. Not this poor guy from Bethlehem who says a lot of weird things. But here he comes. Here he comes, right? Our Donald Trump arrives, and he is going to be the one that puts the liberals in their place. And he's the one that's going to fix it all. Or maybe, or maybe our John MacArthur arrives. He's not afraid to tell Gavin Newsom the truth. He's going to set California in their place. He's going to save the state of California. That's the Messiah. Ah, but maybe James White... He comes on. He is going to tell all of those woke Looney Tunes where to go. He's the one. He's the one that's going to fix my itch. Mark Dever, to get closer to my home. He's going to tell us how to fix our church. That's the one I need to read. That's what I need to focus on. Al Mohler. Ah, here he is. He's so close I can go to church with him. I can win a lottery ticket and go into his Sunday school class. If only I can touch the hem of Albert Moeller's garments, the itch will be soothed. This is all of us. This isn't just the pagan liberals that are living out in Louisville. This isn't just the woke Christian United Methodist Church down the road. This is all of us. Where do we go in our problems? Ah, John MacArthur's sermons. Where do we go in our problem? Ah, Charles Spurgeon's sermons. Where do we go in our problems? Ah, Mark Dever's books. Where do I go with my problems? Ah, the briefing. Al Mohler's going to put the Mormons in their place this morning. That's what we do. And yet Jesus is standing here saying, I'm right here. I'm right here. You've missed the mark. You've missed the mark. And we have to rip ourselves away from our idols. 
we have to rip ourselves away from our self-worship because as Jesus says of himself earlier in this chapter, do not marvel at this. Remember, the healing, the balm, the ointment. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Consider what he is saying. We all have lost people dearly in our lives. I've lost my mother at the age of 16. I lost my best friend's brother at the age of 17. And those scars remain. And here I have a God who is telling me that he is going to call into the cemetery. He is going to call into the tombs and say, come out. I don't think, I'm not saying that my, my mother is literally going to rise from the grave here tomorrow. But what I am saying is we are all residing in our spiritual deception in the grave. You are in the tomb. And Jesus says of himself, he is the one who will call into the tomb. And we will hear his voice. And we will come out. The dead man the flesh wasted off of his body, deteriorating and being eaten by bugs and maggots and ants and worms. Jesus calls into the tomb and he says, come out. I am your remedy. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus calls into the tomb. In just a few chapters, six more chapters, Jesus' friend is going to die. He's going to be dead. He's going to be entombed as Jesus delays his trip to go. And he calls into the tomb, Lazarus, come out. And he does. And he does. Lazarus comes out. The greatest miracle that can happen on the face of this earth is that he calls. Jesus calls people out of their tombs and they come. And they come. And they are alive. And they are new. And they are reborn. Think of what Nicodemus is told at the end of John 3. Or maybe it's the middle of John 3. That he is like the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. Recall that passage. As the, as the Israelites are wandering, there are serpents, and these serpents are biting them, and they are dying as a result of their sin. Moses seeks God. Make a bronze serpent. Put the bronze serpent up on a stick and raise it up high. Because when people are bitten, they can look to the thing on the tree and see their hope and live. They are called out of their tomb. 
what was as good as dead can look and see their living hope and live. That is the only remedy for our spiritual deception. Number three, our awareness of this soothing balm and precious remedy, our awareness of this Messiah, Savior, giver of eternal life, this Jesus Christ, our awareness from, of this God, of this Savior, is the Word of God. Verses 45 to 47, the conclusion of these words. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, whom you have set your hope, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, For why? He wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Our awareness of this soothing balm, this precious remedy, is only through the word of God. So this verse, we read earlier in 5 that Jesus is the one that the Father has given judgment and justice to. And now we have Jesus saying that he is not the one who accuses. What's the difference? There has to be a difference. The accuser and the judge are two very different things. The accuser points and says they have done something wrong. The judge determines that the accuser is either right or wrong. The jury, right? That's their job. Moses stands in accusation, pointing to the Israelites, pointing to the Pharisees, pointing to them, saying, they are guilty. I have seen it, and I know they are guilty. He is saying, Moses is saying, as the the mediator of the old covenant, right? The one who went up between, or up to God, stood in between the people of Israel and God himself who was given the law and brought it back. The mediator of that covenant, Moses, he is not standing there in accusation saying they have failed to uphold his law. That's not what Moses is accusing them of. Moses is standing there and accusing them of failing to see the Messiah. He's accusing them of failing to see Jesus, their hope, the one who has been promised since Genesis chapter 3 to come. Moses points to Christ. The Old Testament points to Christ. The entire Bible points to Christ. Jesus on the road to Emmaus illuminated his peers' eyes and showed them that the scriptures point all to him. Think about it. The proto-evangelion, or evangelion, if you want to use a hard G. Genesis chapter 3. The sun will smash the head of the serpent. The first gospel witness. Noah. 
the chosen one to stand while all others face judgment. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and the promises, the covenant given to Abraham. Genesis 14, Melchizedek, the high priest who shows up and receives the offering from Abraham. Isaac, the sacrifice. That's just the first half of Genesis. There's still 30 more chapters in the book. Not to mention the other four that Moses wrote. Not to mention the entire Old Testament that points to Jesus. Hebrews, the series we taught through. What was the purpose? What's the purpose of Hebrews? The purpose of Hebrews is to tell those Jews of the diaspora, your Old Testament passages point to Jesus. Here's how. So, how can you and I know where to go to find the eternal relief to this eternal itch? It is only by reading your Bible with your eyes opened and illuminated by the Spirit of God. As my friend told me years ago when I first sat down in a church with him, go home and read the book of John. So how can you see that remedy? Go home and read the book of John. For here's what you'll find. Here is what you will find. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you, Jesus, are the Holy One of God. That's the only balm. That is the only remedy. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious, you are good, you are merciful, and you are mysterious. Lord, may your words sink deeply into our hearts, into our minds, into our frame. So we are so consumed that we turn to you for our hope, for our life, for the breath in our lungs, for all things. In Jesus' name, amen.